November the 3rd. It is Tumble Vision, episode 85. Welcome to Tumble Vision. It's where our human and tech selves intersect. I am your host, Heather Gold, with your other hosts, Kevin Marks. Hello there. Sounds so good this week, Kevin. Where are you? I'm at home with a good connection and a quiet and, and home is like San Jose, right? San Jose, yes. I'm in Germantown, New York, not far from our FDR's houses. And also, we have a spectacular location for our third host, Deb. Where are you? I would be in Tel Aviv, Israel. And where it is, 3 a.m. And our guest this week, urban planner, sustainable food advocate, horror motivator. You are actually, Jill's the only person we may ever get on the show who has done the thing that the word tumbling originally refers to. I tumble. Getting, getting people to dance at a wedding. Actually, I do tum- it. Jill Slater. Jill, welcome. I brought tumbling back. And, um, and you know, you can't say the word tumble Hora and wedding without breaking into na 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 na. Okay, that's it. Go. I just found out that it's three against one. I did not know there were three hosts and one guest. That's crazy. It's like some sort of flash dance, you know, audience interview. The the um, dance, the dance interview. Uh, what is that called when she um, auditioned? So you think you can dance? Audition. Yes, the audition. We need, you know, the line. So the you panel, think? So you other. think you can guess? There's three of us. Well, <laughs> we're here. We're all here to help. So mm-hmm. anyway, let me just explain to everyone listening to our podcast that Tumble Vision is a weekly salon style podcast where we talk about how to connect and create a world that puts people at the center of business tech and culture, not the other way around. So in a post-Occupy Wall Street world, we would like a tumbled world that has everything serving people and human needs. And so we explore different dimensions of tumbling with some of the most interesting people we can find creating this new, more networked world. Why do we use this word tumbling already? Why are these yentas not explaining this weird word to me? Well, (laughs) we have a guest who can explain it to you. I, I'm going to throw to the guest just because it's so entertaining. It's a Yiddish yeah. word. Jill, can you explain tumbling? Tumbling is assuming that we have an awkward group of antisocial or at least extremely neurotic people sitting in the <laughs> same room who don't know how to interact without somebody else helping them. So across the world, there were people who were paid to walk around either dressed up as a clown or dressed in a suit or had some sort of, um, some sort of, uh, cards with them or magic tricks or some little thing to keep people entertained. And they would walk around They would go from table to table at the dining hall, or they would walk around the halls and they would find people who were either by themselves or standing near somebody else, but not speaking to them and say, how can we get these two people to talk to each other? And they would either entertain or kind of bring them together physically, grab a hand, take another hand. Okay. Joe, this is so great. Only because it's the top of the show. I'm going to interject for a quick sec so I can fill in one or two pieces of business before we're going to come right back to this. So Jill is giving the most detailed, historically accurate, <laughs> in-depth understanding of sampling we're ever going to get. And we're going to finish it. But I just want to let all of you know the reason we're using this word and this tradition is because in a post-hierarchical world, which we believe we're moving to, in a more networked world, which the technology world is being pushed to very quickly, we believe this is really a, a skill that's needed to help people connect, to make conversations happen in an ongoing way because it's sort of what's most needed is helping connection 
and social participation happen. Most systems now are pretty dependent on it. So we believe the way that collaboration works best is tumbling and that it's a skill that, that's depth, needed in depth and that tools and systems need to be designed around supporting that. So that's what we do. Our sponsor, our show's brought to you by Hover. Hover's a fantastic domain name host, very simple. Makes it really easy to register a domain or transfer your domain from somewhere, say, annoying like GoDaddy, which they don't ask me to say. I just want to make it clear. Hover has never asked me to mention their competition. I just want you all to know that I'm so delighted that if I to undo any customer from GoDaddy, that I just take it upon myself to tell you. <laughs> you really don't, not only because of their annoying and ridiculous and you could say sexist uh, Super Bowl ads, but their service is annoying. It's just pure annoying. So I am always happy to see people move to a place where life is easier, and I'm grateful to our fantastic sponsor. And if you want a deal, who doesn't want a deal, 10% off, Click through at our site, TummelVision.tv, or use our promo code Tummel, T-O-M-M-E-L, at Hover. So, Jill, back to you <laughs> and the magic tricks and the card tricks and the neurotic, socially anxious people not understanding they were setting the tone for all future social interaction needs. Okay. Right. So the tumblers so, walking around with the magic tricks. And, and what era is this you're talking about? Oh, and where? Give us a setting. Is this a village in Lithuania? No, 1950s Catskills, before people flew far, far away for their vacations, they would drive up to the Catskills in upstate New York, not that far, like a two and a half hour drive, and they would eat for days. (laughs) And in between eating, they may also see a show, play some pinochle, a little bit of shuffleboard, swimming backstroke. And all along, there were tumblers throughout to make sure that they were having a better time than they thought they could. So how does a tumbler become Mel Brooks? Because that's what happened. How does a tumbler become Mel Brooks? Um, Well, tumblers are supposed to be funny. I mean, if they're not funny, I guess they're not successful and people would not feel more comfortable around them. They would just feel more awkward and uncomfortable. So I imagine that a good tumbler makes people feel comfortable just as much as a good comedian can kind of warm the crowd and make everybody feel like they're in this kind of happy, friendly environment, which I imagine brings us to modern tumbling that you would be talking about how to make a room feel like they're amongst friends as opposed to mortal enemies. Excellent. So anything else you want to add in there, Deb or Kevin, to tumbling history or things you want to know? Because it sounds like Jill, I feel like I'm in the Catskills with you with women and yeah. I actually, yeah, I did. I did an updated tumbling um, in addition to the whole horror motivating thing, which we'll get to. But this whole idea of tumbling started when um, my friend and I went to a very awkward uh, group Passover Seder in San Francisco, and we were placed at the 30s and 40s table. And our table was very uncomfortable and very sad looking. And we looked over and the 20s table was all a bustle and having a great time. And an hour later... Our table was the one that everybody wanted to be at. And they were all jealously looking over and saying, why are those people having so much fun? And that is because my friend and I took over the table and started asking people, you know, to talk and asking them questions and kind of bringing up different conversations that might be fun. And um, 
and then uh, got everybody talking. And suddenly it was like we all knew each other for years, you know, from a very you could imagine those awkward situations where you're at a group dinner table and nobody knows each other and like they all want to just disappear. So that's kind of where we got the idea that we were tumblers and that we should be paid to actually surreptitiously sit at various dinner tables <laughs> and kind of get people to start talking, which is what the undercover tumbler was. If you weren't dressed as a magician, you know, who knew who was the tumbler and who was the real guest? That's when the that's where it all sort of the uh, finesse came in. The subtle tumbling. Deb, are you still there? Did we lose you? I, I, I am indeed. I was just listening um, attentively to Jill. Uh, the, the only thing that I can add to her brilliant description is that even though we use Tumblr in the modern sense, the origin, this original role in a more formal sense actually comes from the Middle Ages. Mm. Um, they weren't always called tumblers. They were called something even more difficult in Jew in Jewy language to to pronounce. Something called a badran. Ah. Uh, they still exist today, and appropriately so. I'm here in Israel, and they still are formally hired at weddings to be both tumblers and get everyone to participate with each other, but to also use. The, the, you know, to also make sure that the wedding has a, um, uh, a progression and that all these, and they have all these little tricks and tools in their toolkit. Not, you know, yes, there's the, the, the humor part of it, which is, I think, the way we think about it. But they have lots of other little tricks, the dances that they do and that people learn and know. And so they expect mm -hmm. them to do. There's sort of a, um, almost a, uh, a recipe. Um, and a certain expectation. But I think with both of those, it is all about, like you beautifully said, it getting people to feel like they've known each other forever. So here's a weird question. Uh, I ask on behalf of someone like Kevin. Kevin, here's my thinking. If you're not stuck with the, the Jewish culture, you might say to yourself, these Jews seem to be able to talk just fine. What possible need could they have for someone to help them? Jill? Can anyone answer that question? Uh, Kevin, from I, the I, outside, you would say that tumbling is not necessary at a Jewish affair? Well, why would we come well, up with Well, I may that? have an awkward sample, but um, I, I got the word from someone else who wasn't Jewish either, um, which was Theresa Nielsen Hayden, when I was scrabbling around trying to find a word for this in the context of online communities, hmm. trying, to, trying to say, OK, there are these people who make these things work and I don't have an English word for them because there isn't one. Hmm. And Theresa Nielsen Hayden, who's an who's a, um, editor at, at Tor Books and has a vocabulary like you wouldn't believe, said... Well, there's a really good word in Yiddish that's tumla for this, and you should, you should use that. And I was like, oh, thank you. Um, and so that, um, when I said that, um, Debs and Heather were like, yes, that's exactly right. Thank you. Oh. So I, I, I sort of lucked into this because I was, I was rummaging around for a word for this, for this role um, online, and I had, I had tried geisha, um, <laughs> but that doesn't work for Americans. The Japanese people go, yeah. That's the dead right, yes. And the Americans are like, you mean a hooker? And it's like, no, no, it's someone who makes people talk to each other. Hmm. So Interesting. Yeah, I think actually, I, I, I think your point, as humorous as it is, Heather, is actually, um, you know, made me think that uh, the truth of the matter is, I mean, yeah, we Jews are good at talking a lot, but 
it's usually talking at each other mm. <laughs> and not necessarily with each other or lit. we're not very good. At I give big points to you for saying that. That's we're not true. very good at listening. So perhaps the Tumblr um, and all that, that, the sort of formal and informal role sort of created space for um, maybe listening and connecting to actually happen. Mm. I posit. I think that that's pretty interesting, especially because Jews have, as um, Jill and my friend Suzanne would say, she's a linguist, a lot of overlap in the way we talk. Mm -hmm. We speak uh, synchronously all the time. I just saw a woman who I haven't seen since I was 16, who's been living here in Tel Aviv, an old friend. And seriously, she's the closest person I've ever come to another, other than another friend of mine, Kerry, that we literally, we can have an entire, well, we <laughs> most people eight hours, we do in four because we're just, you know, talking in stereo at the same Simultaneously, time. Simultaneously, but you know, you don't miss anything that the other person said. Not a freaking beat. <laughs> we have early multitasking. Yes. Anyway, it's a, it's a humorous. I'm visualizing. Very, yes, that is very funny to imagine. To visualize that, I mean, you know, that works with some people, and some people just feel like it, it is, uh, it's, it's, not, it's wrong. It's just wrong. So, what we like to do at the opening of the show, because Jill, we're not usually fortunate to have somebody who happens to just off the top of their head know the history of Tumbling and has done it, um, is we like to talk about what went on this week and stuff in the news, and uh, that relates to to this kind of way of navigating stuff. It's, it's a useful, I mean, I don't know how, how it'll jive with you used Jill, but when you're used to traditional leadership, generals, marshalling things, you know, CEOs driving people to do stuff. Mm-hmm. And then you get used to an online culture that's moving things much more communally. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, you can see why we were like, what's a different way to describe this way of helping stuff happen without telling everyone to do stuff, right? So that's how we kind of got, got at it. So um, has a- anything in the news? I know, um, Kevin, anything that, that struck you? What struck me this week? Let's have a think. Um, While you're thinking, can I just I'll say, I love that. how Brits say, can I have a think? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very British expression. Yeah, I like that. Have a think. It sounds like an, something is going to happen for sure. <laughs> it's like um, an event. An event. Hang on. We had oh. more. We had Occupy Oakland. I don't know if anyone saw the photographs, but it was there was an extraordinary number of people. Yeah. Uh, in response in Oakland, because there was massive. Uh, there's violence there. In the today they week. closed down the port, which is unbelievable. The yeah. largest port in the world. I mean, they just stood on the trucks and the trucks couldn't drive. So, um, and it's very decentralized, Occupy Oakland. And it seems, Jill, I mean, you've had a lot to do with Occupy Wall Street. Um, It seems like every time there's some kind of command control, let's crack down on somebody. Mm -hmm. It makes the response, like it makes the group get bigger. Mm -hmm. Well, I think people should start noticing that. I mean, I think that's, that is a proven fact over and over again. So I think that's what's keeping them from um, actually ending it. Because I think that New York, the mayor, the police could, in effect, 
create a big problem and try to shut it down. I don't know how that would turn out, but I think that what's keeping them from stopping that is that every time there's been some kind of strong force, it's gotten a lot more attention. That's how the whole thing started, because nobody was really paying attention. The media wasn't covering it until the pepper spray incident. And then they got so much more support from a wider array, not just only crazy people who would sleep in the park, but the whole city started to pay attention and and figure out ways of being involved. I have this theory that Occupy Wall Street was started by non-New Yorkers because we don't have people who would do that, who would like live in the park for a political cause. So Uh I feel like we had to import people from upstate and from, from Portland. And, yeah, and, I was I, I was thinking the only thing that New Yorkers stand online overnight or outside for is like Shakespeare in the Park tickets or concerts and iPhones for an iPhone. iPhone and iPhones and iPhones. Sale the Connect. I saw a line overnight in Times Square for the Connect when it came out. Right. Um, you know, maybe the, the newest whatever bag, Birkin bag people. I don't know. If they would know. <laughs> If you went to Wall Street and you said, oh, no, everybody in this park is here for a Birkin bag. Do you think <laughs> that CNN and everybody else would say, oh, now they're, oh, thank God. I understand their clear message. Fantastic. A clear message. So that was uh, the- I love them. Well, that was the, the other thing was that this week that um, they said that the New York police had been telling uh, drunks and homeless people and released um, criminals to go to that park because um, <laughs> they get free food and tents it's and true. blankets. It's true. Were they it's telling like, people? I was wondering how long it would take for the entire city to find out that there was free food and free lodging. But like, um, people are sending the money, you know, I go over there. I just think But the, the problem is that the police are getting a lot of their own. They're really digging their own hole. I mean, on the cover, you know, just a list of stuff on the cover of the Times today of all of the things that they've been accused and um, proven guilty of in terms of bad behavior, you know, total, you know, like corruption stuff that is not helping them at this point. Do you guys see the Oakland police officer's letter? I thought this was fascinating. No. Share. I just put it in the in the uh, IRC. Um, so the, the Oakland Police Officers Association wrote a, an open letter to the citizens of Oakland saying, we're confused. Um, we were told by the mayor to clear up the encampments. And then the mayor said, you can go back in. And then um, the mayor sent out a memo saying they're supporting the stop work strike on Wednesday um, except the permissions, except the police can't take the day off. They have to, um, they have to come and police this. So we don't know what's going on here. We're being we're being giving messages that are completely conflicting by the mayor. And can you help us out here? Which is which was a fascinating sort of public statement by the by the um, the police officers association. Mm. Yeah, uh, I mean, yeah. In some way, you know, trying to back away from like firing tear gas canisters at people's heads and things. But well, yeah, that is that is interesting. That's true. I, I did see a little bit about that. The the fact that I just think about the Bay Area where these kind of this sort of values and, and the the DNA of protest that it's in everybody or at least a majority, a big chunk of the people. So there's a lot more um empathy for that kind of thing. And so the police kind of have to explain themselves if they're not gonna join, if they're gonna attack instead of join in the protest. I think that's what why they had to make that public letter. 
Um, Deb, I think you had some stuff from this week you wanted to get into. Yeah, I mean, um, briefly as it relates to um, sort of comparing, uh, you know, Occupy to what happened in Israel this summer. For those who don't know, on July 14th, um, which is actually a few months before the whole Occupy movement kicked off, two women, and I'll shorten the story, in Tel Aviv got kicked out of their apartments and were basically had had enough. Uh, Tel Aviv is very expensive right now and is going through its own, you know, 99%, 1% issues um, where there's a very, very wealthy upper class and, you know, no middle class to speak of. And um, people are finding both food and shelter very extremely expensive. And um, they decided to say, you know what, we have no place to sleep. We're taking our tents. And we're going out onto Rothschild Boulevard. Rothschild Boulevard is in the center of town, in front of the National Theater. A lot of startups are in this neighborhood right now. So it's got a weird combination of Soma in San Francisco, <clears throat> South Park, kind of where all the startups are in San Francisco. But, it, but it's on Park Avenue. <laughs> so, so it's a boulevard that has a grass um, island in the middle. And this protest started with two tents and became hundreds and thousands of tents um, that were living outside all summer. And I'm sure our linguist Burke can find a good English article about it. Um, and you can also check out J14 was the hashtag they used because of July 14th. And it was, uh, this went on for a while. There was a lot of negotiation between you know, the city and the people and back and forth and the few things that I wanted to bring up, which I thought were very interesting to contrast to Occupy, and some would argue that it was a, a, a related spark to Occupy. And I find that interesting. Like, how did that happen? You know, it started in Tel Aviv, and then the same thing was in New York. It's kind of interesting. They subsequently have had, everyone has since at the end of August left. Hold on. What, the, what, what are you saying went from Tel Aviv to New York? Some people think that what happened in Tel Aviv this summer was a spark for Occupy Wall Street. Well, I thought that what happened in Tel Aviv was considered, they considered it sparked by Egypt. Right. And you can keep going back. But, but, huh. but, Occupy, but the Tel Aviv protests are much closer, more tightly linked to Occupy because they're both about um, not necessarily, they're not overthrowing dictatorships per se, but it's just very mm -hmm. economically speaking. I mean, they're all interlinked. Absolutely correct. hundred percent. But the concept of the way that it's framed, you know, coming out, staying in a tent, demanding government, you know, the, the chant in Tel Aviv was the citizens demand social justice for all. Um, you know, well, the few things that were interesting, which I've learned in talking to people since, um, being here is always different than doing it from afar, is Saturday night I went to the, um, uh, one of the follow-up protests in Tel Aviv. So the tents are all gone now. Um, many people weren't happy with the way the city did it. Some people were, and I don't know enough of the details to get into it as it relates to Tomalang. But the <laughs> couple of things that were interesting to me, I do have some other related things about the police in Tel Aviv versus the police in Oakland, which you'll all find interesting, which is the second part of the story. But the first part of the story is attending the rally Saturday night here um, was very culturally interesting to me because you had a lot of tumblers. You, have, you had people of all ages and a pretty broad, broad swath of 
demographics as much as you can, even financially. Um, the way the Israelis do a protest is a little different than Americans. I mean, you had some of the biggest musicians in the country down there performing as well. And they ended the rally with the national anthem, which is not unusual for Israel. They end a lot of things with the national anthem. But it, paused, it, it really had a feeling of nationalism as well as protest um, in addition to that. And it, it made me start to think about um, America, which is the only other place that I can personally speak of where the protests are happening. I don't know what's happening in other countries as Occupy goes on. That it's sort of sad and makes me angry that in America, those who protest aren't viewed as nationalistic. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than viewing it as like, wow, these people want to make a change. I mean, it's right. sort of the only the right can can own nationalism right now in America. And that was really sad to me. That, I, don't, that, I, you know, I don't think that that's, that's true, Deb. I think it's just that in the, US, in the U.S., only the right says that the right can say it, but nobody else believes that. It's just that the left or the middle or whatever you call the rest of the media um, acts as though the right saying something is just a, is so or something. I mean, obviously. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it, it's, it's in the, the, right, the media gestalt and the conversation. Um, and that doesn't happen here, which really pisses me off. Well, a, a but you're, fun- you're saying that, that in Israel, people are happier with this kind of protest or they see it as more. It's, 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 it's I don't know if happier is the right word, but it's seen as much more of a nationalistic movement that we're all trying to make change. Yeah, well, if there's if there's um, a movement in Israel, the peace movement, is that also seen as, as nationalistic or seen as treasonous there? Um, it, well, it, it, it depends on who you ask. Um, what I'm saying is, there's the same. Is there the same right-left thing there, where the right goes, "Yeah, yeah you're all yeah. you hate the country, yeah. you're destroying the country, you can't even say yeah, that. If you say that, we die tomorrow." Blah blah blah. Yeah, about politics and the peace movement. Yes, about financial stuff. No. I mean, what's the difference if something's going to end? You know, what did you say? Well, occupying Israel is really about sort of the middle class wanting, you know, you know, not, in Israel, it's actually like eight very, very wealthy families that run a lot of big businesses. Right. There's a credible monopoly. So, you know, there's that piece of the equation. To me, uh, that, to me, what's happening in Israel is a very clear follow-up to a socialist country facing capitalism, facing the onslaught of capitalism and not being comfortable with it because that all the changes that have taken place in Israel over the very recent last 10 years, maybe even less than that, have been towards, you know, the things, the choices that America has made in terms of cutting out the safety net and and, and moving towards capitalism. And everybody's used to a very nice socialist country with a lot of safety nets and you pull all those away, people are shocked and upset and they don't realize or they don't, they didn't expect that, Oh, when we get to have all these like perks of capitalism, we also have the, the downside, which is, you know, now we have to worry about if we're going to die and if we're going to live as we're going to age in poverty and we're not going to have anywhere to live and we're going to have to pay for our health insurance through the nose and all those things that they never worried about. So that's, that's what I see this as a very obvious next step in Israel. I think that's a big piece of it, but I also think that there is, 
an incredible monopoly among some very few people. Um, so it's, it's as if you sort of took everyone from, you know, uh, I, I think this is a very capitalist country and people really would do want to do stuff. It hasn't to me felt, felt, um, you know, the real socialism from the back from, for a long time, but it does have your right. That's sort of right. We know that that's its history. That's its background. But of recently in the last 10 years, the thing that I think broke the camel's back, so to speak, (laughs) I am in the middle East, um, (laughs) uh, was was the was the fact that that some of the some of the safety nets took were taken away and the only people winning were are also have a monopoly. It's a really unfair sort of scale. But I think it's both. I think you're right. Um, it and it's pretty extreme. Now, just to round out the Israel thing, because we I know we have a lot we want to talk to Jill about. One thing that also stuck uh, stuck out with me was uh, this great story that I heard that every Tuesday night. And at once, uh, once a month in Tel Aviv on a Tuesday night, I don't know which, which night I'll find out, um, a hundred ro- the rollerbladers rollerblade through the streets of Tel Aviv. It started out as a counter movement, sort of like what we have in San Francisco with the bikers whose names I'm forgetting. Um, uh, critical, critical mass. mass. Critical mass. Thank you very much. I had that on, um, Last last um, week when I went to the um, the office and came downstairs and both Occupy San Francisco and Critical Mass were there and people <laughs> well, in Halloween costumes um, <laughs> and naked people on bicycles and it was like oh yeah I'm in San Francisco okay well, how could you tell the difference between any of them <laughs> yeah right, they exactly. were all merging but but it was also there was like somebody had brought in a, a truck full of bikes for people to ride so that hmm. they were definitely trying to merge them deliberately. You know what was a great, great, great idea of Occupy Wall Street for Halloween? New York's Halloween parade is gigantic. And it is. That was the only part I saw of the parade. It's (laughs) legal. And there is, they have a permit. So finally, all of Occupy Wall Street could march legally. So they all dressed up, they brought their signs, and they just had a protest enmeshed in the Halloween parade. Acted. Perfect. I love it. It was amazing. Really good idea. That is a really good idea. Well, what was interesting to me was that I've spent a lot of time this week, and it's not my first trip to Israel for those who are listening um, for the, one of the first times. I've spent a lot of time here with startups. Is I was here with a, with a conference that was from overseas. So the whole week we were talking about Israel as a startup nation and the character and the personality traits, and the tumbling stuff came up. But one way that it came up in a more framed way was around this um, these, these rollerbladers who originally started completely illegally. And I mean, Celebi is still pretty small city. So a couple hundred rollerbladers are going to have an impact on traffic. Um, and the police's immediate response was, wow, these people are out rollerblading and it's illegal, but they're going to do it anyway. So instead the following month, the police put a team together and they strapped on their own rollerblades and they joined them. (laughs) What's illegal about rollerblading? Well, it's not. It's they were literally taking over main thoroughfares in the middle of the street. They That's why you're, you're comparing it to critical mass. You're say, it's like saying there's nothing illegal about bicycling, but if enough no, of you show no, no, up. No, no, no. It was just the masses of uh, amount of it, it. You know, you need to provide some safety for them or you need to tell them to all to stay on the sidewalk. It's too many people. So they're very practical. You know, they're like, well, we like, you know, why don't we just rollerblade with them? Well, we're not going to stop them. We can't close the streets. So. The, the police became part of the, you know, and now it's a it's a great bridging mechanism for what's going on on the on the 
you know, in the community. It's hard to be a hard ass when you're in rollerblades. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Very well done. And if you want, we can talk about some of the tumbling as it relates to startups and other stuff. But th- those were the two main points as it relates to stuff I knew we would talk about. So, at- so Jill, when you were, were sort of taking upon yourself to get people to talk at a, the wedding you were at, so was it a wedding where you got this idea? And oh, I know the, you've been, you've been uh, paid. No, to- it was a Seder. It was a mass Seder. And you've also been paid to get people to dance as a horror motivator. That's right, which is very hard, as you imagine, to tell people in a loud room or even a quiet room, I'm a horror motivator because they always hear something else. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, That's great. A horror motivator? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. This is the problem again, isn't it? (laughs) Because most horrors have no motivation to do their work. That's their problem. They have to hire a motivator. (laughs) I'd love to lay these 20 guys, but I need some help getting it going. Um, So (laughs) I just want to see, like, Reluctant Whore. That's a sitcom I want to watch. The Reluctant Whore. The Reluctant Whores. Oh, what are you doing? Oh, God, I got to work today. No. So, Jill, um, oh, so, okay, so how you, did horror you talk about some of the things you did, some of the techniques that worked or that you found yourself doing over and over, things that... For the horror motivating? Yeah, and for the, for the giant satyr that you tumbled. Yeah, the horror motivating um, is mainly because I, um, I like to dance a lot. And one hopes, just like when you smile at somebody and they smile back, even though they have absolutely no reason to smile, it's like a reflex. One hopes that when one sees one really having a great time dancing, that others, that one will feel inspired. So I, um, I know a band called Golem that is kind of like a punk klezmer band. They play weddings. They play bar mitzvahs. When they play weddings, they are invited by the people who are getting married because they the, the the couple who's getting married loves this music and so when they're invited they know that their friends are going to like it and you know there's going to be a lot of dancing bar mitzvahs are another question however another issue because it's the parents who hire the band think it's cool and the kids who want to leave and do not want to be there and so i am hired to make sure that there are actual children taking part and participating and dancing and also it's helpful for bar mitzvahs where a lot of people are not Jewish there and they don't really know what to do and they don't understand how you can possibly dance to this band's music. So it's in the band's interest to get me there and it's in the host's interest to have me there to um, keep the dance floor occupied, shall we say. Look, mm-hmm. I brought the word occupied back into the conversation. I'm so excited. Well done. Um, <laughs> So, yes. Yeah, Jill, I have a question for that. So how do you view the role of the tumbler, like you said, as at a wedding or whatever, as different than the parents who hire those, um, you know, uh, salsa dancing, light, lit, well lit up, you know, (laughs) overly sexed dance groups where for 13 year olds. (laughs) Right. When you see like a woman with a V-neck down to her puppet. As, a puppet, yes, right? I knew. And um, she's like dancing. Can you guys it. explain puppet? You guys, when you say Yiddish, let's translate for someone else who listens besides us. Belly button. Okay. Belly button. Thank you. Time that it was further south, but I did find out later. The older child that it's belly button. That's your knish below your puppet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not translating that. Okay. Yes, that- 
That is a good question because we definitely, there have been times when we have been pitted against these people that the wedding host hired, that the bar mitzvah host hired both, hired me and the, like, the whole dressed up entourage with the uh, glittery costumes. Um, I feel very good about what I'm doing because I feel like at a bar mitzvah, you, ha you should be dancing to klezmer music and you should have some sort of horror action in order to have some element of a traditional event, you know? And so I feel, I feel proud to um, bring those traditions back for people that just don't even know what to do and are very reluctant and are too cool to dance in a circle. I drag them over and suddenly they seem happy. So how, tell me, let's get into the nitty gritty. What is okay. dragging someone over okay. like? What is Go, that? like run to the back of the room where there's strawberries being dipped in chocolate. Take a 13-year-old boy's wrist and drag him across the entire dance floor to, I mean, drag him across the entire room, past the tables, past the grandmas, past everybody, and onto the dance floor, and then make him stand there, and then go back and drag some more boys, until they all are, like, in a circle, and then I'm like, okay, here we go, look, there's some girls, you can hold their hands, and then we're going to run around, and we're going to dance, we're going to take, we're going to form a circle, and, you know, there is some... There are some appealing things to small boys, like teenagers like things to get rowdy. and They like hot chicks rowdy. to come up and grab them. Yeah, and holding hands and being rowdy. Like, the more rowdy you are for the horror, the better. So if, like, a small child lifts off the ground through the centrifugal force of this circle, you've achieved greatness. <laughs> I mean, you've really, really come to a successful point in the party. Um Let's see. What else? Uh, okay, you know, I have a question. Yeah, I have a question right there. I, yes. So if we're if we're deconstructing what you do, I love yes. I love yes. the image of you dragging this poor thirteen year old across the floor. Um, <laughs> when is the moment that it goes from sheer panic with that <laughs> circle and people kind of feeling really dorky to right. the wow, this is kind of fun and we're abandoning our uptightness kind right. of right well the good thing about this band is that they are so intense they really like force you into a frenzy as long as you are on the dance floor and the thing about a group activity as opposed to you know there is even though i am sort of subtly from within leading in general it's the group motivation and it's the group dynamic that builds on itself so once the circle starts, it's like those those things in the playground where you spin it and then it just keeps spinning. So once you get that thing started, like people are facing each other. They're watching each person in that bewilderment state. And then I think it just you just lose the fact that you are inhibited because you have to run because someone's pulling you on one side and someone's pushing you on the other side. And and you just start moving either against your will or beyond your your ability to remain cool. You cannot stay cool. You cannot stay cool and aloof while you're <laughs> dragged at incredible speeds around a dance floor and sort of hoping that you don't slip and fall. I think there is a momentum that builds and then people are just they lose themselves. I mean, that's that's what I that's what happens to me when it like gets so intense. And I, and I imagine, and I see on people's faces that I think that's what's happening 
to them as well. So you're caught up in something against your will or beyond your expectations, and you are having fun, whether you expected to or planned to or not. And I see that all the time with, like, ladies who don't want to move too quickly, who don't want to sweat, you know, or men who are, like, standing on the side and think they're cool and they're, they're above all of this. And I like the moment that you're describing, Deb, of when does, when does that facade have to drop based on mm-hmm. the fact of survival, basically? <laughs> because if you stop, you'll get trampled. So it's a survival of, like, having to keep moving and then against your better judgment, you actually are having fun. And that's a wonderful thing to see when that, 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 um, that letting go. That's a very nice thing to see. It's really interesting because I remember be, I, I have, having grown up with very, you know, in an observant family and all the weddings I went to at the beginning of my, you know, wedding, going right. to wedding life where all these sort of, where the almost all the only dancing was like religious dancing till the end when the rabbi left and then the, the band could break up, break out into other stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember a friend of mine coming to uh, an Orthodox wedding, his first Orthodox wedding, and he was, he said something like, wow, you guys have so much fun at these weddings. And it's a very different type of um, dancing. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it is because of what you're describing. And I don't only think it's Jewish weddings. I think it's any kind of wedding where that traditional dancing has happened right. of any sort where people sort of face each other mm-hmm. and are physically connected to more than just a single partner. Mm-hmm. Something weird sort of happens, right? Something right. Like, like playful. Right. But it's also for me, it's also the frenzied aspect because the, right. the tempo is so fast that you just kind of lose yourself and you don't know what's going on. You can't even see straight because you're moving right. so quickly that you can't think about like assuming a position or an attitude or, you know. Well, when was the last time most people dance that way? It's when they're in right. kindergarten. Like to me, there's something very communal and community-like about it, which I'm trying to, like, pull the metaphor from online. Like, it's dancing with everybody together as opposed to that formal, you know, dancing with a guy or a girl one-on-one. Right, partner partner dancing. Right, this is is jumping into a community. I mean, it is absolutely a community-oriented activity. So the group fosters that feeling and that you can't have it with one. You cannot possibly do a horror with one person that is a fact of the matter so you can't <laughs> achieve you cannot achieve success unless you have a community at least you have at least you know you could do it with three people it's kind of weird but you could do three i've done three just to like get things started and then it gets bigger and bigger oh another another tactic is when it gets too big break off Take one person has to take the initiative, break off and make an inner circle and then another inner circle. So you have concentric circles so that, you know, there's room for everybody to fit if you want to keep keep going and you want to have circles. And then the other really good tip that everybody should pay attention to that will really change your life moving forward. When you have to lift somebody up in a chair in the middle of the circle, it's very important to not have a collapsible chair. One and two, and two. It's very important when you curate who the people are that are going to be picking up, which was also something I did. I would make sure beforehand. I'm like, listen, I'm assigning you the task of lifting the chair. When they say, 
who can pick up this person? I want you to volunteer. So then they're not just, you know, so then the chair is not just standing there on the ground and nobody's coming or wrong people are coming. So I assign the shorter people to stand in the back to hold the rear two legs of the chair and the taller people to stand in the front. That way, when the person is sitting on the chair, they're leaning back. They don't feel like they're falling off forward because it's the shorter people that by default have to be tipping them back to hold them up. Isn't that amazing? That's an amazing fact. I hope you're all paying attention because that is the way to, to reassure the grandmothers that they will not go flying onto the ground if they're lifted up in a chair. Uh-huh. These are important skills. They're right up there with learning how to start a fire in the woods, I think. <laughs> well, when I learned that the whole short person at the back, I thought that was very, very useful. Very useful. Critical piece of information. So um, what do you think, Jill? I mean, you've worked in other kinds of environments, other kinds of volunteer environments and businesses. And I you don't, found you were, myself outside of a horror occasionally, yes. You were an urban planner as well in San Francisco. In those environments, have you seen any of the same kind of skill? Like when you're thinking about designing a city, does it? do you take into account in designing the environment that there will be people who will act as tumblers? Are you putting things in place to help people make those connections? The first thing that I think of in terms of the same idea of that a horror cannot be by one person, I think that a, a, a successful plan of any sort cannot be designed or created by one person. And the thing that we had in San Francisco that was so beneficial was a strong, strong community activism, a strongly informed public, and they really wanted to be involved. So... With that, it made for a stronger plan. So you knew that what you were suggesting or what you're proposing was going to be um, vetted by, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people who felt it was their right as well as their responsibility to be an active citizen, which is very unusual in an American city. I mean, I don't know if you see the movie Urbanized, there is a scene in Stuttgart where people are like chaining themselves and thousands and thousands of people working through the streets against and for a certain development, like a very large scale development. And I've, I've seen passionate um, citizens regarding city planning, but I've never seen anything like what was going on in Stuttgart. I mean, it was really crazy. Like it almost got violent about, um, you know, whether a development should go forward. So that's pretty intense. But in general, I think better design and better planning comes from the fact that it cannot be done by one person. It's like Robert Moses was one person. He thought he could right. do everything himself. The opposite is, you know, community planning where the design and the decisions are first vetted. Who, what do we want? What does everybody want? Before you decide what to do, what is actually of interest and what is desired by the community? So that's, that's crucial. But how do you get empowered? Like, isn't part of tumbling to help people feel empowered enough to be involved? Right. right. So we would have, well, actually, there are some overlaps to the horror motivating because we would have these very funny community meetings where in order to make sure that people came, we ordered food, we ordered entertainment, we had like 11-year-old Filipino dancers come and do, like, a performance in advance of the actual <laughs> sitting down and planning meeting. So we tried to um, take out all the stops and making this an extremely entertaining night out. 
um, which was very unconventional for a community meeting, um, a late night community meeting. So that was kind of uh, taking things to a new level um, and making people feel comfortable there. So it was a wide, you know, big, large scale invitation, inviting everyone and anyone and then making them feel like the most important thing about our job is actually making people feel like they have a voice and how to convince them that they do have a voice and that we're listening. That was that was tantamount to um, to the job. We've got maybe about 10 minutes left in the show. Uh Deborah, Kevin, do you want to go into any more detail about weddings and these kinds of events, or would you guys like to move on to more about Occupy and larger kind of movements like the sustainable food movement you work in, Jill, uh, to think about how you keep conversations going and engagement happening? Because everybody wants everyone to be interested in their cause, right? Mm -hmm. So what is it that really works? We've sort of been presuming it's actual tumblers, people like yourself who are very good at motivating other people to stay involved. How do you tumble the tumblers? How do you create an environment that make folks like that show up? Because some people are always going to be better at it than other people. Mm -hmm. Although, And can you teach other people to be tumblers? Is it just something you're born? Hmm. Well, that's interesting. I, um, I guess I would hope that thing that that things that interest people are are that that one wants to promote things that they they find fascinating and that they'll want to tell other people it always is surprising to me that someone could have like really good information that they're just keeping to themselves um i think that is i think that's a basic idea if you hear something great wouldn't you want to share that with other people? And wouldn't you want them to share it with other people? And wouldn't you want um, things to come together around those ideas? I think that's, uh, that's something that's always come natural to me. And, and I hope that it will um, come natural to other people. It seems like now, after all of this, um, after all these years, now is actually the time that that's finally happening. I mean, some people are sharing the most banal news with everybody else on the planet, but some people. But we have so many ways to share really interesting news with other people, and so I think the question is how to figure out what to listen to. Because there's a lot going. There's so much more. Like I can't. You do this a lot more than me, but I would feel completely drowned by the amount of information coming at me if I actually paid attention to all the things you pay attention to, Heather. <laughs> really? You think I feel drowned? I think I would feel drowned if I had to be exposed to the amount of information that I imagine you are exposed to on a minute by minute basis. Why do you imagine I'm exposed to so much information? I don't know. Am I wrong? Do you do you not follow like 40 billion different Twitter people and Twitter feeds? And uh, I don't know. Where do you get your information from? How do you decide what is the important thing happening? I, on- uh, there's a there's a there's before we get to the chat room. There's um there's a post on my site, Kevin, like whisper. You'll probably find it faster than me. That I wrote for Encyclopedia Britannica called uh, "Information Flow Demands a Compass, Not an Anchor." that describes how I started dealing with information overwhelm and what started working for me. Mm -hmm. And um, I found, I don't know how many years ago, I started having overwhelm early because I was so involved in the web. And um, I realized I couldn't plan stuff very much. I'd stopped planning so much. Mm -hmm. I just went to the stream. So do I follow a bunch of people on Twitter? Yeah, I don't read everything. Do you Mm -hmm. know what I mean? I dip in. 
Uh, and I tend to navigate most things by sensation, mm-hmm. not by thought. <laughs> Does that make sense? So how, do you, t- how do you decide? When I'm tumbling what- a room or when I'm picking who I'm going to talk to when I'm doing a show, I'm doing that by a feel. Mm-hmm. I'm trusting a feeling generally. Kevin, you're very impressive. Look at him. He just whipped the link out to that in like two seconds. Um, <laughs> so for me, if I'm consciously tumbling, uh, which is a different question than what am I choosing to pay attention to, the, usually the best thing and part of the point I'm making in this information flow thing about being a compass is the more connected I am to myself and what it is I'm interested in at that moment or I need at that moment or I feel the space needs if I'm tumbling other people, then I only have to look for the thing that's most related to that. See what I'm saying? It's its yeah. own filter. It's its own very immediate filter. And, and this is one of the reasons um, why I believed and I wrote this piece. And I just met with Doug Rushkoff yesterday, and he's writing very similar stuff in his new book, Present Shock, uh, that essentially you kind of get returned to your body, which is what I'm saying. In that piece, I wrote another piece called Stone Cold Sober for Shift Magazine a long time ago after what happened when I dealt with uh, repetitive stress injury. Uh, and then I got treated for it. And a lot of that taught me a kind of being present. Like it, I had to learn how to get back into my body. That's why I went to yoga a long time ago. So I have this weird belief that I think Linda Stone, we get her on here, may back up, that I'm kind of optimistic that the overwhelm of all this stuff is part of what's going to help people get present. Because I didn't get present because I was so enlightened. I'm not so present, but I'm more present than I was because of all this. Is that is that helpful? Mm-hmm. Jill, so yeah. I'm not... I'm not reading everything that comes at me. I'm just not looking at it all. It might come. I just kind of let it flow. It's like, hmm, there's like a thing of chocolate. I'll stick my finger in and have a little. <clears throat> yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm, and we've talked about this, Heather. I'm more convinced than ever that the, the irony is that the more and more techie and geeky we become, the more we're actually, you know, being forced, and I mean that in a good way, to get right, in touch with the stuff that, the, the, well, the emotional stuff for ourselves. Like I've, I've, yeah. I've seen it in all these little examples, even this past week, I've been watching it in a country that's pretty frenetic, you know, um, huh. what, what is uh, it that's going to get Israelis to chill the fuck out? <laughs> uh, <laughs> they actually, you know, they actually are pretty good at it. They're just very, Waitings, right? they, <laughs> they go to a lot of raves and they do a lot yeah. of E, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. But on a serious note, they actually, I mean, they're better off than New Yorkers because they know how to both party. It's true. It's true. They, it's a kind of, for anyone who's never visited Tel Aviv, it has like, I don't know, Barcelona feel. It's by the beach. People work hard and play hard here. Mm -hmm. I think New Yorkers just work hard. And I'm a New Yorker, so I can say that. Um, I could be wrong, Deb, but one thing that I always, always seem to me, I don't know as many Israelis as you do, but I'm interested in what you and Jill think about this. It always seemed to me, if you want to talk about Israeli politics, that Israelis, as loud as they are, generally seemed more chilled out about it than yes. Americans. American yeah. Jews seem much more freaked out about Israel than the Israelis. Of course. <laughs> it's the is that true? It is true because they're, well, you're most Israelis because... I'm sure there's some fringe. They have some fantastic fringe there. Exactly. Because most of them, because they're living here every day and they live in the ebb and flow of it as opposed to the extreme of it in any direction, right? They're they're in it. And if they were as living at a 
you know, what's, you know, resonating at that level all the time. I had a cab driver the other day. I love this. And, you, you know, this will give you a whole other side and an impression of Israelis. I get into the cab and we're talking and, you know, there's a whole swath of cab drivers in Israel that are these 50 to 60-year-old guys. And I'm convinced it's the same guys from when I was 10 who just have <laughs> you know. They're like, you get in the cab and they're very chill and they say, how you doing? And they tell you about their grandchildren and they, and then your 10 minute cab ride, you, you get like metaphysical philosophy from them. Right. Uh, like most good cab drivers, right. In any country. But this guy said today, and it was like such a bang on the head, you know, from an Israeli in Tel Aviv, especially right now from, cause there's political pressure as well as economic pressure. And, you know, we were talking, and he's like, yeah, you got to learn to just, there's an expression here in Israel, which is, yeah, yeah they say that. It'll, you know, it'll, it'll all work out, right? And I was saying, you know, we were talking about something, and I said, yeah, 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 say that. And he said to me, it's not going to be good. It is good. He said, say that. He goes, there's nothing you can do. You have to, he goes, if we constantly lived worried about everything around us and the fact that a bomb might drop on us or our economics or we, we wouldn't survive. So there's too much happening and too much noise all the time in Israel. Because it's not Yebusei. There's not going to be okay. It is okay. This is what it is. Learn to live with it. And that, to me, is what I was thinking about while you were talking. You and Jill were sort of discussing the ebb and flow. Like, Israelis have had information overload at a level. Not literally internet information overload, but in overload of life. <laughs> and that's the way they deal with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have just a few minutes left, and Kevin, you had some thoughts about a uh, developer conference or standards conference you were at? So, so this week I was at the World Wide Web Consortium's um, technical um, meeting, which is where the the, um, the people who um, uh, try and organize specs for the web get together and, and talk about futures of HTML and things like that. Um, and the fascinating thing um, was that this year... Um, they tried they they tried some new things. So they had a bar camp day. So normally they have a bunch of working group meetings where people sit around and have face to face meetings and chew over things, um, and then try and write specs from it. And they have keynote presentations from people about stuff that they think is important. And this year, instead of that, they had a couple of the keynote presentations and then um, a big slot of um, bar camp style um, make your own agenda. Um, gather people together, have a conversation about something and report back. Um, and it was fascinating to see this group because w- as they were setting this up, um, uh, Tantek Chalik helped organize this. As, as they were <laughs> announcing this, they said, who here has been to a, a bar camp or food camp like thing before? And only about 15% of the room put their hands up, hmm. um, which I was, I was surprised by, but I realized that, you know, there were a bunch of us, you know, conference go types who, do a lot of this. And there are a lot of people at W3C who are there trying to make sense of standards for the web for their particular area. Yeah, um, they're, very, they're pretty siloed and hierarchical in that group. Not hierarchical in a bad way, but they're siloed. They're, they're old school. They, they are siloed in that um, it's a membership organization. So um, you are, you're either um, a company that's paid a fair chunk of money to be a member of the W3C and, and, and work on standards, or you're an invited expert. Um, so the invited expert types were the, are the you know the Tantex and the standards people, and the the members are, are more representative of big companies. But it was it was it was fascinating to watch them go through that process that, that was actually done done very well by Tantex and the crew there, um, and come out the other end of it like you know um, 
six hours later, you know, knowing each other much better, um, very excited by the conversation they just had that weren't just within their own groups, um, and then ready to go back into two more days of the groups that they were in with, with new information and things like that. So that was, that was if you like, that was a, a tumbling success I saw. That's awesome. That's, that's really exciting, I think, actually, for that very straight-laced part of that. Yeah, no, so it's, it, it, I mean, it's interesting in that, I mean, to some respects, the W3C um, was perceived as like a legislative body for a while. Yeah. Uh, and so you would, go, that you would get them to try and write the laws of the internet. Um, and in effect, there was a sort of, a kind of a revolt against that where people started making up ad hoc standards and then bringing them to them later. And they, you know, they realized that. And, and it was fascinating talking to Jeff Jaffe, their CEO, and, and Tim Berners-Lee about this. And they were saying, no, no, we can see there's all this energy going on somewhere else. We need to bring it back into our organization and, and you know, give it, give it our blessing. And we want to turn our process inside out so we can do more of this. So that, that, was, that was a very interesting um, sort of second-order tumbling piece of the, the, the standards um, conference that I went to this week. That's exciting. Wow, very cool. Spreading it all. Jill, I want to thank you for being such a wonderful tumbling guest. I'm telling you, the most tumbling person I think we've had now, episodes 85. I want to thank our sponsor, Hover. Hover Hover.com. You can get to them through our site, tumblevision.tv. If you're looking to register or switch a domain, you can call them. Whether you call them or check them out online, use the promo code TUMMEL, T-O-M-M-E-L, for a great discount. Uh, I want to encourage everybody who listen live, if you're listening to this in a download podcast, because we've got an awesome chat room. We hang out before and after the show. There'll be a, there'll be a post-show shmai with Jill that people always say are super awesome and get very relaxed sometimes. Things we maybe shouldn't broadcast, but we do. Uh, <laughs> And uh, if you would, please check out uh, us on iTunes and review us on iTunes. The more reviews we get, uh, the more people can find the show. So we will be back next week with another tumbling, savvy individual. Deb has stayed awake till a ridiculous hour in Tel Aviv. That is ridiculous. Now you can feel like you're a raving, you know, you're a party Israeli. Yeah, just on the day when I was finally getting into local time, I am. Wait, no, I am going to take this uh, opportunity to say yes. It was. It was. Um, it was. I am so excited that I stayed up to be on this um, particular channel with Jill. It's perfect. perfect. Yeah, yeah. The Brooklyn, the Brooklyn connection. It, before we go, any other like insider Brooklynness you guys want to say or let anybody know about anything you wanna you want to uh, promote. I am promoting that I will have lots of more interesting stories in the next three weeks as I stay at Tel Aviv till the end of the month. Stay tuned. Mm. I think the band that I've powered with is uh, playing this Saturday night at Union Pool, um, and they're amazing in Brooklyn. So uh, it's a rare show. They don't really play that much in public anymore. That was a random plug <laughs> i'm sure they appreciate it appreciate that was very that was that was demonstrating tumbling right there that's yes that's me promoting things that i love that's that's really all i can do is promote things that i like it's a much exactly. much harder to do that if i don't really love them and kevin anything you want to let people know about um not no not not off the top of my head um 
look out for some of the output of the W3C um, TPAC if you if you care about the web. There's there's a bunch of that going on still. Is it happens tomorrow as well? If you are concerned about the web, I would also encourage you to Google Stop Pipa P I P A. Oh yes, the uh, horrible uh, intellectual property bill. Pipa Sopa like- E Parasites. It's got a lot of names, but it's all evil. It's, it's pretty bad news. They want to stop DNS serving. Uh, you know, if they no, I, had, like- I, I had I had lunch with Tim Berners Lee yesterday at the the thing, and, and oh my. Mr. Um, Internet. The name drop. So Tim Berners-Lee is the guy who invented oh, the web. I had place. lunch with the guy who invented the whole thing yesterday, and he, and he thinks. Was, and he was worried about DNS being the the point of failure that was attackable by governments, and what we could do about it. Did you get anything on videotape with him talking about it? No, no. This was this was a, a, a quiet lunch for four or five of us. I, I, I shouldn't actually produce a video camera. I should have done that. Maybe I'll try him tomorrow. Okay, if you have it, send it to me because I'm putting a little video together. That's okay. exciting. Yeah, it is. It is a concern. Uh, okay, I will. I will bring a camera tomorrow and please see if I can tweet uh, uh, the Congress people. Um, I'm just <clears> going to mention here at the top of my head the guy who's the child of the main guy who matters on the Judiciary Committee works at Facebook and his Twitter handle is RSG. Just drop him a line and be like, "Dude, the internet you enjoy, we'd like to keep it." Um, so that's the main thing we like to promote. I want to thank Jill. I want to thank Debs for staying up so late. I want to thank Kevin for having such a great connection. And Deb is going to take us out this week. And then I want to thank Andrew Hazlitt, producer Andrew Hazlitt in Baltimore, producing for the new Modern. Thank you, Andrew. And take it away, Deb. Tunnel Vision, the only show that brings you talking about the W3C and horrors at Jewish weddings in Brooklyn in one podcast. Yay! Yay! Which is what everyone's looking for. Right. <laughs> yeah, bring it all together. I was just see from Catskills to like Second Life, the, the tour, like the, the art of the um, that Exactly. It's the art of the internet and people. There you go. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Thank you, people. <laughs>